Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, it's the feel-bad shows of the holiday season. <laughs> we'll examine the trial of a Cleveland man accused of being a Nazi, war criminal, in Netflix's The Devil Next Door. Then we'll follow CBC podcast reporters looking into a massive child abuse ring in Hunting Warhead. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author and my partner in crime and partner in life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat and horse lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our resident cynic, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and the host of our Patreon book club, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Good evening, Rebecca. All right. So I've got a couple of announcements for our loyal listeners. One is... We are taking next week off. So even though the holiday will be over and it'll be Monday again, Mm -hmm. we won't have a podcast dropping on December 3rd because, because yeah, we'll be taking Thanksgiving off. We tape on Wednesday or Thursday. So for us to make that work, we have to skip our taping and not skip our drop. I think I need a week to emotionally recover. Yes. A hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. A hundred percent. And I do have a palate cleanser recommendation I'll make in the show. I also want to let our listeners know that- Uh, At some point in the near future, we don't know exactly when, uh, we are going to be having some changes to our audio hosting platform made by our wonderful advertising partner, Stitcher and Midroll. And what that means is that our ads are going to be done slightly differently. So you might notice some slight production changes in the show. One thing you might notice is that a couple weeks ago, we stopped doing timestamps for our Thumbs Up or Thumbs Down review because in the not too distant future, we might actually not know what that timestamp is going to be. And uh, we'll give you more on that later. We don't need to get the technical details. But we want to let you know if you've been noticing some slight changes, it's because we're prepping for that transition. Right, Kevin? Yes. And many, many, many other podcasts are going to be doing the Not same thing. Not just us. Many yes. popular shows. Yeah. We'll explain a little later about what's happening on the text. Right. Nothing to worry about. Nothing bad is happening. 
It's just no. if you notice some minor changes, there is a reason we're not just trying to punk you. <laughs> <laughs> or not just trying to punk you. Right, yeah. right. You can get all of our popular thumb sideways reviews just by using the skip button and waiting until you hear the word thumb, right? And the final thing I want to mention is that our Patreon is full of wonderful content. Kevin and I finally delivered that brand new episode of Mary with Podcast we've been promising. Mm -hmm. Our taping schedule has been still a little bit delayed because of Kevin's still recovering voice. Right, Kevin? Yes. So we're not able to tape them like with regularity, but we promise this latest one is awesome. So you should check out our Patreon now. And today on our Patreon After Show, which is available right now on your Patreon feed, the Crime Writers on After Show, in which we talk about a lawsuit that was filed against Laura Bricker's future husband, Doug Evans, <laughs> the prosecutor <laughs> from In the Dark. Wow, that's going to be another crime of the week because I'm going to off my future husband before I even get married. Wow. We also put together our fantasy podcast Thanksgiving table guests. So the people from all the different podcasts that we would invite. Yes. And we also have the bad table. We do. The of people, who we put the villains. The villains table, yes. <laughs> the villains table. So check out today's Patreon after show right now. Go to Partners in Crime Media on Patreon and subscribe to our Patreon. You'll get that after show right now. All right. You guys ready to start the podcast? Yes. I'm ready. John Demyanyuk, he was a family man. He was living the American dream. He was a good American citizen. Up until the government came along and said he was Ivan the Terrible. Netflix's The Devil Next Door recaps the legal battles of John Demyanyuk, a retired auto worker in Cleveland accused of being a Nazi prison camp guard known as Ivan the Terrible. Charges were filed today against John Demyanyuk, the 66-year-old Ukrainian native, is accused of being a Nazi death camp guard named Ivan the Terrible. The crimes that he was accused of were horrid. The Israeli government is seeking his extradition as a war criminal. Demyanyuk was extradited to Israel and sat for a highly publicized trial which began in 1986. Holocaust survivors identified him as Ivan the Terrible, but the defense maintained they got the wrong man. The Justice Department presented evidence right from the KGB. I was sure that I would destroy the show. There was some rotten going on. My father's a very kind person, a very gentle person. Are you sure you're not making a mistake? Everybody in the courtroom went... <gasps> Featuring extensive film from the original trial, as well as disturbing Holocaust imagery, The Devil Next Door challenges the viewer's allegiances. There is evidence pointing to mistaken identity, but is the audience supposed to root for a potential war criminal? Now, we will be talking about spoilers for The Devil Next Door. So to skip to the part of the show where we just give our thumbs up or thumbs down review, go ahead and use that fast forward button in your podcast player. So, Toby, this is quite the documentary. It's historical, but it also involves, not unlike the second thing we're reviewing tonight, a lot of morality questions that do challenge the viewer. Can you just talk about that, like how it is when you watch something like that and you're asked questions like that? Like, what is your reaction uh, when, when a filmmaker is challenging you in that way? Well, I think it's good. You know, I, I think one way of approaching making podcasts or making films is what are the questions that are asked by the events that we're covering? Uh, you know, I think the really good documentaries and really good podcasts transcend the story that they're telling. And yeah, again, I think I think both these did a really good job. And I, I assume we're going to be talking a little bit more about the specific things for uh, Demyanyuk. 
Now, Laura, you may send me the note that this documentary was very, very hard to watch. Yes. Uh, for many reasons. Do you want to just outline a couple of those for me? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, obviously the footage was really hard to watch, but it's a case where even though you realize, you know, this is supposed to be like a wrongful conviction, wrongful identity sort of case and that John may not be Ivan the Terrible, for me, it was just like, I, I had a very hard time, almost impossible, stepping back and looking at it with any sort of sense of sympathy for him, just based on the atrocities of the Holocaust and the fact that he may not have been Ivan the Terrible, but it was pretty clear that he was involved in some way in terms of what had happened. So I just don't know if this was the type of case where, like, we watch a lot of cases where it's like, this person shouldn't be convicted or whatever. And th in this case, I'm like, I don't even care because I just I was having such a hard time separating what was happening in Poland and the footage that I was seeing and mentally, physically, emotionally just couldn't really distance from that. So it was it was really hard to watch it from an objective point of view for me. Now, Kevin, there's a couple of things about material related to the Holocaust that are just sort of givens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at least I grew up with them. I can't speak for all of our listeners. One of them is that Holocaust imagery can and should be used in stories about the Holocaust. And, and there's mm -hmm. a reason for it. There's like a real reason for it because there is this idea on the Holocaust that like you can't forget and you shouldn't look away and to not show the imagery is is disrespectful in some way in in a, in a way that in, uh, with other atrocities that same line hasn't necessarily been drawn like for instance when they show 9-11 footage a lot of networks still have a policy about not showing the planes hitting the buildings or the, or the buildings falling exactly right but yeah. when, it, when it comes to it's holocaust yeah. material that's that's okay. is a different line the second thing is and i think this is the most challenging part of this documentary is we have been told, and this film tells us, many of the characters in this film tell us, that no matter the circumstances, you believe the survivor. And yet, some of the survivors in this documentary are unreliable witnesses. And I know this is a sensitive topic, but it was something we kept talking about while we were watching this, right? Yeah. I mean, and like, you know, what Laura says, it's very challenging, too, on like who's, who you're, like, quote unquote, rooting for here. Right. Because the storytellers are telling the story in a way where you're piqued about maybe it's the wrong guy and you're looking to be fed information that will change the narrative, right? That's dramatic tension. If it's he's the guy and it's just a story about how he went on trial, there's no dramatic tension there and not really a reason to dive into the story in the same way. But it's also challenging because it's like, well... Now, are we hoping there's a different Nazi prison guard? And then you find out that he actually was a guard of some kind and did partake. I mean, his, in the end, they did find like his military right. IDs and right. stuff. And he had been, I guess, in the Ukrainian army, who, which were Nazi sympathizers, and they worked together in the... He was captured caps, and indoctrinated. Indoctrinated. Right. Yeah. So he was part of the, the apparatus. It ends up being kind of like hard on the idea of if you want to believe in the dramatic tension that do we have the right guy or do we have the wrong guy, you have to have a little bit of willingness to think that the survivors are mistaken. Right. You know, when you said believe the survivors, I think that, you know, if they say this happened on Tuesday and it really happened on Friday, I don't think you say, well, then it must have happened on Friday. Right. At some point, common sense is that, you know, if you're old and you're proven to be senile, that maybe some of those details are wrong. Not the whole truth of the thing. Right. Or maybe you Obviously. want it to be true so you can have closure because you're yeah. so traumatized. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was put very well by one of the prosecutors who said, this is the first time anybody sort of challenged that. 
to mm. them. And in a way it says, no, that didn't happen to you. Right. So to say anything about, yes, that happened to you, but not with this guy, still sounds like that didn't happen to it you. It sounds like a non-believing situation. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's tough. You know, it's, you, obviously your hearts go out to those survivors, but you also have to kind of look at it objectively like, okay, this is about whether or not this guy was the guy who was there at the thing 40 years ago. Right. And that's a different story. And it may be right or may be wrong. So, Toby, one of the things that was interesting to me were all the outside forces at play in this trial and in this story. So I think there's a pretty compelling case that there was Russian KGB interference in this case and identifying this guy as Ivan the Terrible with these documents that, you know, I think the film does a pretty good job with credible experts at least convincing me that, you know, it seems like a case of mistaken identity or a wrong identity and it was likely put in place as an operation by the Russians to divide communities in America, which is a very timely conversation because they're still doing that shit. Oh, they wouldn't do that. (laughs) The second part is the potential influence that gets intimated by the prosecution of anti-Semitic groups in the defense of John in this trial. What did you think of those narratives of outside interference in this story? Yeah, so I guess it's it's two pretty different things. For the first one with the Russians, or I guess the Soviets at the time, uh, forging these documents basically to embarrass the U.S., it's not surprising. Uh, I think it's something that we probably should be embarrassed about, and they get to it at the very, very end. Uh, when they have Elizabeth Holtzman talking about it, about how we were like happy to bring in Nazis as long as, you know, we thought they could contribute something. Although I'm not really sure what Demyanyuk was contributing. It was also interesting how credulous we were about that stuff when they do talk to experts. And it seems like some of those things like the staple holes and stuff like that, it seems like that would be something you would notice if you were trying to evaluate whether something was legit or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a desire on our part to get Nazis who had been let in as sort of a, not really a mea culpa, but a way of, of trying to make amends for some of those decisions. And then the other thing about the, the anti-Semites, it's one of the troubling things that comes up a few times is anti-Semites see themselves as supporting uh, the defense. So you've got the Klan members like. Oh, yeah. In the beginning. Yeah. One of the, I say, great moments with high irony is when they have that Klan guy talking about like how we've all got to get along. Yeah. Oh, my God. And uh, that was was like, what the hell? (laughs) And then his original lawyers, you know, family background that I don't think he really distanced himself from very much when he's given the opportunity to as being a racist and an anti-Semite. I, I don't know. It, it, it does leave kind of a weird taste in that it seems like you'd be trying to avoid that connection if you're in Demyanyuk's situation. You wouldn't go fundraising at places that were known to be anti-Semitic because you know the reason why they're giving you money, and it's not because they think you're innocent necessarily. I mean, if the USSR, if their intention was... Now, granted, we'll just put a pin in the fact that Demanyuk probably was this other guard and did commit atrocities and was eventually convicted for that. But if you were the USSR and your intention was to start a legal proceeding that would divide a specific community in the United States a specific way, nice job, guys. Like, really good job. You got the job done. 
uh, really successfully because you got like all the right characters on the board. You got Chef Tell, this like really interesting character of a defense attorney. Yeah. Uh, who was like um, early career Alan Dershowitz or whatever, but more saw, showy. Yeah, who saw Alan Dershowitz in the crowd shot? I did. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I totally missed that. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, you know, uh, you know, the son of an anti Semite and the, the lead counsel. You have, you know, all of these interesting like characters back home who are just like, no, Grandpa's great. And then you have John, aka Grandpa who conducts himself like a sociopath during the entire proceeding. Laura, what did you think about all those scenes? His weird affect, his not reading the room. Yeah, that was the thing. Again, it's like hard to feel sympathy for him when you're watching him because he's like smirking and he's kind of like got an attitude as he's sitting there. And so it was like not somebody that you were like, kind of rooting for as this was going along fireman ken watched the last one with me and his like favorite part i was like god this is so fucking depressing and he goes no i really like the scene where he played possum i'm like what he's like yeah when he like laid down in his wheelchair but they had like the the video of him like walking around so it was like (laughs) a complete sham but that again just really i was like I'm sorry. I I get it. I get that there was a lot of things at play here and this was not a fair trial, but he didn't help his case at all. And it was really bizarre. I didn't realize that the grandson that was like commentating through the whole thing, like he hadn't really met him, it sounded like, until he came home from Israel. Is that what you guys took from that? Yeah, he was really young, but like the family was just incredibly loyal. They were just loyal to grandpa. Like that was the deal. Yeah, that was fucked up. I don't know. The whole thing. But yeah, I I did I did enjoy when they had to carry him out. I was like, what is this? You know, we had a case um near us like that. You remember they they had the guy who was like it was a murder case. And he claimed he couldn't walk. And then they actually had video of him like running down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Taken by a P.I. Was that you, the P.I. who did that video? No, it wasn't me. Channel 9. (laughs) I think it might have been Amy Cavino. Our friend Amy Cavino might have been there when he was like, I can't walk because of whatever. And then they're like, yeah, you're full of shit. (laughs) Kevin, what do you think of Chef Tell as a character in this documentary and as the lawyer in this case? I think he said that he was voted with the most annoying man in Israel. <laughs> and I can see why. I mean, he's just like all this gaudy jewelry. And he certainly does look like the kind of guy that you want to smack in the face. <laughs> right? Who enjoys annoying you. He looks like the kind of lawyer whose picture would be on a bus stop ad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Except fancy at the same time. He has an interesting sort of like pedigree fanciness at the same time. And he's a very good lawyer, apparently. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think so. Well, he eventually got the uh, conviction reversed. He certainly was dealt a bad hand because, you know, you're trying a Nazi war criminal in Israel. I mean, that is a steep legal hill to climb. Yeah. And she, I mean, he had a hard time finding attorneys like up until Chef But he seemed psyched to take it. Yeah. And I think for... His own reasons. Yeah. His own, you know, desire for publicity and self-aggrandizement. And, you know, he's like going on TV shows, taking lie detector tests. And- <laughs> what the fuck was that? Right? <laughs> what was that? Like, you know, all I could think when he did that was like it reminded me of like Geraldo, like doing like some dramatic like like scam like thing on TV, like a stunt to get publicity. So, yeah. For, for all his like weirdness and annoyingness and all that stuff. 
you can't have a legal system if you don't have lawyers who are willing to take on unpopular cases, right? Sure. Correct. Uh, so he's the one guy who kind of stepped up. So in in some ways, despite his faults, and I think he had sort of a, a weird charisma about him, he, he's kind of what made it all work. Yeah. You know, I don't know what they would have done if, they, if, if he hadn't stepped up. I don't know what kind of trial they have. And I have a hard time being satisfied with the way things ended in Israel, although I think in the end, I think that one guy was right in that being convicted in Germany may have been sort of the most fitting end of this whole drama. But the fact that those three judges in the Supreme Court were able to overturn that conviction, I thought was like a pretty strong case for the Israeli judiciary. Yeah, agreed. You know, I mean, can you imagine the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court right now, making a ballsy decision like that? To like overturn like a 9-11 terrorist conviction or something like that? Yeah, no. I mean, it just just certainly wouldn't happen. Kevin, this documentary is challenging in one other way. Yeah. And this is something that comes up in the next thing that we're going to review, which is also much darker than this. The family, John's family, continues to make the case that his... Lack of reoffense for what it would have been. He didn't commit any more war crimes. In America, you know, he's a man who worked at a factory and Mm -hmm. was a grandfather to grandchildren and so forth. That even if, you know, there was some kernel of truth, like, you know, that should be enough. And that... That he thrived in the rigid structure of a factory environment. That is a very... (laughs) Very difficult thing to wrap one's mind around when you are talking about a guard at a concentration camp, even a guard at a concentration camp who was a POW. I mean, I think the decision we all like to think we'd make is we'd say no, and then we'd be shot on the spot, but at least we wouldn't have done those things. And I think that's somebody who a lot of confessed Nazi war criminals, not people like John who fight it, but a lot of them say, like, I just wanted to survive. But, you know, they're still culpable. They still participated, you know. But this idea that just because he was like a nice grandpa and didn't, quote, reoffend, which to me is like the most ridiculous kind of concept when we're talking about war crimes, that we should feel differently about him. Like, that's challenging. Well, I, I think the family is allowed to feel about their grandpa the way they want. And if they want to believe that, yeah, he did what he had to do because it was World War II and the, everything was crazy, then that's their comfort. I find it interesting that everybody who got interviewed had the same book next to them. The title was The Wrong Right Man. Or was it The Right Wrong Man? It was The Right Wrong Man. (laughs) Okay. Meaning that, hey, he was the wrong guy for this, but he was the right guy to grab up. Mm. Because, like you said, he didn't do the thing that they got him for. Mm. He did the other thing that they eventually got him for. Yeah. And I think there are still people that believe, no, 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 he was Ivan the Terrible, He could have been in both camps or whatever, but he was definitely that guy. I guess we'll never know, Mm. but I hate saying, well, he did something, but yeah, he did something. Yeah. Toby, you sent me an interesting note uh, before we give our review about this was potentially the final trial of a Nazi war criminal, and that added some pressure. What do you mean by that? Well, I just think it is like one of the last reckonings, and you think about the founding of the state of Israel- which was, you know, in part because there wasn't a Jewish country, right? There wasn't a place that on sort of a a national level could represent Jews. I mean, throughout medieval times and, you know, and then coming to a head in, in World War II, there were 
always to a certain extent at the mercy of the country that their community happened to be in. So that when Israel is created, partly in response to the Holocaust, part of what that allowed to happen was to have these kinds of situations where you bring Nazis to face the people who they victimized and have, you know, a Jewish country be able to convict and and punish and exact retribution. And I think that was a very powerful thing. So knowing that this is perhaps the last chance to get a real Nazi monster and convict him based on the testimony of survivors, I think is is a is a very powerful moment. I mean, I think that we should probably wrap it there. And, you know, I want to like wrap, maybe have us talk about some of our production questions and stuff in our reviews. I think they might come into play a little bit better there. So why don't we do what we do and give a thumbs up or thumbs down or maybe even a thumb sideways review to The Devil Next Door. Laura Brecker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think about this documentary? Um, I think this is a perfect documentary to bring back my thumb sideways for because it was just really hard to watch. Um, something I probably would not have watched if we weren't reviewing it for this show. But, you know, in addition to that, I think for me, one of the things that that I did not like is I felt like they they clearly got access to a lot of archival footage from the trial and all the news coverage. And it was like, they were like, oh, yay, we have all this footage. We are going to use every single bit of it. <laughs> so they did in the first three episodes, which could have been like one episode. And I felt like they had access to a lot of the key players in this case that were still alive. And that would have been much more interesting to have sort of a reflective, longer interview with some of them than just like cut and paste all these old like trial tapes that they had. So um, I'm going with thumbs sideways. Um, it was not something that I relished watching. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down, or maybe even not one of those two choices for The Devil Next Door on Netflix? Uh, I definitely give it a thumbs up. It's funny because my, my reaction to all the archival court footage was sort of the opposite of Lars, and that I found it super interesting and very affecting. I mean, the story takes its twists and turns, so there's enough suspense, and you're kind of wondering what, what happens. But that's almost secondary compared to sort of these, like, I think really huge questions about, you know, confronting history. And at the end, somebody's like, you know, the Holocaust was 50 years ago. When are, when are we going to finally move past this? It's like, wh what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Like, there's, there's no statute of limitations on the Holocaust. It's, it's ridiculous. So I, I think for those kinds of things, I, I, I thought it was really good. I, I wasn't sure going into it, what my thought would be, but I, I left thinking it was good. But again, it's not surprisingly for a thing about the Holocaust. Uh, it's a super tough watch. Yeah, I'm leaning toward thumbs up. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a thumbs up. I agree with Laura's complaints about the production. It was too long. The first three episodes kind of all blended together for me. In fact, I missed half of one of them completely. And you were able to just tell me what happened in, in about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then when I started watching episode three, like it was exactly what you had said in 30 seconds, which tells me that that half an hour of material didn't either didn't need to be there or could have been condensed way down. Some of the most interesting stuff that happens in this story happens around the conviction and after the conviction and during the appeal. And that's like two thirds of the final episode. And I... I do think the story was done a disservice by the long production, the over sort of baked too many clips. And I have one other gripe about 
this kind of thing on Netflix. This, this has happened to us a few times where we like really like the content of a documentary. We just it's too many episodes. Netflix is, uh, and maybe this wasn't initially going to be a Netflix project or whatever, but I do think that when Netflix acquires projects like this, they should serve their viewers better by going in and doing a little bit of re-editing so that we don't start an episode with a bunch of what we just saw in a previous episode, because that's not how people watch stuff on Netflix. They watch stuff on Netflix, they watch a thing, and then they watch the next one. And they may not binge all five in one sitting, but like it is the experience of immediate viewership being available. Like Taking 10 minutes to tell me what I just saw is not efficient, and it actually, for me, really takes away from the experience of a documentary like this. That being said, super interesting story. The access they had to characters in the story are incredible. And I found myself being challenged by a lot of the big questions the documentary asked. So I'm going to go on the side of thumbs up for this. What about you, Kevin? I am a thumbs up. I think it's an important part of history. This is funny because we talked about this one other time with Adam Ragusea on these other stories. This was the ripped from the headlines it was? story that inspired uh, an episode with uh, Briscoe and Logan. Remember, the, the guy killed his wife. Because they were both Holocaust survivors. And but she was going to tell. She was going to tell because she found out he was a Nazi guard. And, yeah. yeah. So we talked about it. And it's funny because when we got to the Devil Next Story, I didn't remember. I remember I remember doing it, but I didn't remember any of the details. It really got a lot of interesting twists and turns. And it does make you wonder about his culpability in the first trial. And I think the documentarians do a good job of planting reasonable doubt in the mind of the audience. And it's, a, like I said, it's. You do have to kind of go through some difficult visuals, Mm -hmm. as you would with any Holocaust-related material. But I think it's worth it. It's a great historical footnote to examine. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, moving on. Before we talk about the next topic in our podcast, I do want to give our listeners some warnings. We're reviewing Hunting Warhead, which features descriptions from investigators, victims, and perpetrators of child sex abuse, which can be triggering for some listeners. I was triggered myself by a lot of the material on this podcast. I am a survivor of child sexual abuse myself. So you need to understand that when we are talking about this topic, 
we really do understand the sensitivities here. And we also understand it might not be for everyone. However, it is a podcast worth talking about. So we are going to do that. If you want to avoid this discussion, you can feel free to skip ahead to our thumbs up or thumbs down review. CBC Podcast and the Norwegian newspaper VG have teamed up for a disturbing investigation into the digital world of child pornography, as we are told on the podcast, child sexual abuse material. Hunting Warhead begins with an investigative reporter exploring the dark web who then stumbles upon Child's Play, a huge network of criminals around the world sharing images of child sexual abuse. So you're interested in finding out who ran these sites, the administrators. Child's Play was this growing beast on the dark net. Yeah. How did you identify the the administrator of Child's Play? What did you know about him? Yeah, what we knew about the administrator on, on Child's Play was uh, his name. Well, not his name, his username, uh, which was Warhead. Warhead. Yeah, that's uh, the only thing we knew about him. Host Damon Fairless talks to investigators, academics, and the families victimized by those who molest children and distribute their photographs. It's a little surreal to be talking about it so openly, especially with people who know as many details Mm -hmm. about how far this went. I guess the natural question is like, why do you feel compelled to talk about Mm -hmm. the most intimate details of the worst part of your life? Like, why is it important to you? I've thought about that a lot. It's difficult. But it's something that I felt, if if I don't do this, I'm really going to regret it. Fairless even interviews Warhead himself. The podcast opens questions about the psychology of pedophiles, the technologies that enable them, and the tricky ethics around investigating and the techniques used in this particular case. Now, I do want to start just by saying, you heard my trigger warning earlier, and you heard that, for me... Kevin, I think that you know this podcast was actually triggering for me. I also found it incredibly compelling and unlike anything I've ever heard before. And I think it's important. And I love the framing of this as an investigative journalism enterprise collaboration between Canadian reporter Damon Fairless and this Norwegian reporter, Hoiken Hodel. And sort of investigating this together, along with, of course, this other Norwegian who is an ex-hacker who now works with the publication. Okay, you'll have to uh, sign in. You're visiting VG. And you're from CBC. I find collaborative journalism enterprises exciting, especially on this scale. In fact, Kevin, the podcast opens with a scene in Australia, which is no small thing Like when you're talking about the kind of reporting that's involved, this Norwegian reporter talks about actually going to Australia to talk to these guys. What do you think of this as a project and how it was sort of put together? Well, I think it's uh, indicative of the size of the crime and the criminal organization, that it's all over the world. And so in order to get to it and really investigate it, whether as a cop or as an investigative journalist, you do have to put a couple of miles on. And so, yeah, it's surprising that it covers Australia and Norway and Canada and the U.S. and virtually every place where you've got an Internet connection. So, you know, looking back on it, it shouldn't be surprising, but it is very admirable journalism. Now, Lara, the podcast kind of sets up. I mean, I, we should just say it's a CBC podcast, so the episodes are probably too long. <laughs> they probably explain things a little too thoroughly, and it's just not 
sort of like the style we're used to in terms of like tight storytelling. But when we kind of get to the sort of beginning of the story and what we're asked to grapple with, the podcast's first big ethical question is about this Australian operation because what they end up finding out is that Warhead, who they're looking for, is no longer operating as the runner of this website and he's been replaced by Australian investigators, cops, who are actively participating in the distribution in this child abuse uh, online network. What do you think about that investigative dilemma? That's tough. I mean, it's like anything like that, although it's more serious than when you have like an undercover drug cop who you know, you know those cops have to use drugs if they're going to be believable when they're infiltrating and, and doing things like that. But in this case, where it's like actually continuing to distribute child porn and actually pretending to enjoy child porn and, um, you know, really portraying themselves as part of the that's it's a tough call. And I think there was a part later in the series where one of the mothers of one of the victims is is like, you know, hell yeah. I mean, how many people did they get with this? They got like 200 people. So it's like, does the end justify the means? But then it's tough because then you hear again, though, the numbers, you know, you think, well, wow, that's a great dent that they're putting in that. But then it was like the numbers of people that are continuing to download this this kind of porn. It's just growing. So it's like, can you even really stop it? So I think they shut it down at the right time. I think if it went on for too much longer, then it would have been a little bit harder to stomach. Right. Now, I do want to, Laura, give you the same correction that we heard in the podcast. Uh, we are told, and they do make a good point, the Norwegian reporters, that child pornography is an outmoded term that implies consent and implies production on purpose that children are not able to participate in. If you use the term child pornography, then that's a term describing the images as seen from the abuser's point of view, that this is uh, images made to, to, you know, sexually arouse people. But uh, that's not what they are. They are images of child abuse. So that's how we need to talk about them. I think we should all be accepting because that was the vernacular for our entire lives. And so, Laura, I'm fine with you using the term, but I think that our listeners just need to know, like, we did absorb that lesson in this yeah. podcast. Like, we get it and we will be oh, careful. Yeah. yeah. And there was some really disturbing um, types of this that they talked about that were just horrific. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's explicit. Yeah. This podcast has some explicit moments mm -hmm. with like a child that died. I mean, I just I had a hard time. That was just awful. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will say I would argue slightly that a child abuse image does not convey what the content actually is. That that reads to me like it's photos of kids being slapped. Well, it, it does. Be, no, but that's a, that's child pornography. I think we know exactly what. Well, that's because kind of that's our vernacular, is. and I think this I know. I, I, they make a good point. Yes, but again, if you're going to talk about what language ought to be versus child, child sexual abuse is the that that's the term of choice. I think uh, in the U.S. That's right. So, Toby, what do you think of that big question, the investigative question? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the big thing is that they're not producing these videos and and images. It's mostly making available stuff that's already out there. So I think the argument that they that they make, and I, and I think it's a fairly reasonable argument, is if we shut down this site, there'll be another site that will pop up or, or a group of sites that'll pop up. So it's not like these images are going to go away or not be available. But by maintaining this particular site, it does allow us 
to track people who are, who are getting it and potentially bust people. And, and they do. I mean, they are successful doing that. I, I don't think it's a huge moral. Like, I, I, I think it's I think it's a pretty good investigative technique and it's not perfect. And I think, you know, there are issues of making these images widely available, even if they would be anyway. I, I still think that's a difficult thing. But I think, you know, unfortunately, when you're dealing with this kind of crime, I think it's hard to do it in a way that's much less questionable. And I, and I think it's also you got to think about how how is law enforcement do you go about this if not that way? Well, I think we get a good lesson in that. In episode one, we hear very precisely, probably too precisely and too long and detailed about how this former uh, hacker who's now a, a journalist is able to track people by cross-referencing usernames, by using metadata only. So he's able to like build this huge database where he's like knows when new photos have been uploaded. He doesn't have to look at them, but he's able to identify which ones are child abuse images and which ones aren't. And then he's able to do all this cross-referencing where he's able they're able to identify specific perpetrators in their own country, and they're able to identify where the server farm is, which everyone said would be impossible, and he's able to identify who's running the site, which again is supposed to be impossible, it actually, I think, shows that the only way to investigate the stuff is to be in it. And I, I actually think the podcast makes a really good case for that. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I think if the question is how do you how do you ethically investigate it, Toby's right, It's there's no other way to do it. Much like cops would use cocaine that they seized in a previous drug operation in order to continue an over, uh, you know, a new undercover operation, it's very similar to that. And there's really no perfect way of doing it. And I, th- I think Toby hit it right on the head that if you want to lay a trap, you have to use some kind of bait. So we learn early in the podcast that Ben Faulkner, a Canadian man, was actually Warhead and that he had been arrested before this operation began. And we hear from, dare I say, the funniest and most sympathetic character I've met in a podcast in a long time, his poor, poor roommate, Gordon. They handcuffed me. They took me downstairs and they handcuffed me to a chair. And I sat there and I'm looking around and there's 15 to 20 police officers going throughout the building, looking at everything. It was a very, very busy place. And this female officer comes in, she walks in the door and looks at me and says, how are you doing, Sonny? And, and I looked up to her and I said, oh, oh boy, Mondays. <laughs> and what was her reaction? She said, uh, you're going to need that sense of humor, kid. Laura, um, this poor guy was living with a mastermind pedophile who was also running these international sites and rings what did you think of these scenes where he's just describing like his experience living with this guy? He was always on his computer. They would make jokes about, are you hacking Capital One? What did you think about those? I mean, first of all, can you just agree with me that poor Gordon, like he did not sign up for this shit. All he wanted to do was go to the opera for fuck's sakes. So, oh my God. I, I don't know. I mean, I have to tell you, like listening to it and listening to him describing what it was like living with him, I started getting really, I'm like looking around at all these people I know and I'm like, 
those people, they could be doing the same thing and I would never know it. Same. Um, and I was like, I bet that person, that person seems a little suspicious. I wonder what they're looking at their computer. So I definitely, I think what sort of surprised me about listening to him describe what it was like living with Ben was that Ben was so nonchalant the whole time that he was looking at this material online. Like, you know, not to be too graphic here, but if this is something that is, you know, very uh, exciting for Ben and arousing, like, I guess I was surprised that he wasn't showing any emotion the entire time that he was running the site and looking at all these images. If this is, you know, you know what I mean? Well, it was addiction and it was power. I mean, I think the podcast very clearly gets him him, himself because in that incredible episode five, He's interviewing him a lot about this specific thing. And Ben admits it was partially the pedophilia, but it was also the power of controlling a million plus people at any given moment. And it was an addiction. I think we so needed to have Gordon or a character like that. Totally. To, I'm not calling him comic relief, but in the classic sense where there is uh, some sort of relief of tension. Yeah. Because this is pretty heavy stuff. And he's not a victim. He's, he's like not one a of victim. the only people in the podcast who's not directly a victim no. of any But of I, I do think that the podcast goes up to another level at a certain point during Gordon's story. Because we hear all about him going to Washington and we're like kind of like half laughing at him. Like, you're going la-di-da and you don't know that you know the guy you're with is like the king of child pornography. And it isn't until towards the end when he finds out Ben wasn't there necessarily for child pornography. He went to rape a four-year-old girl. That was a jaw dropper. It was. And I mean, I that was mind-blowing. And it just, everything after that, um, the stakes got so much higher. That's why I feel so bad for Gordon. I mean, listen, I feel bad for everybody in this yeah. show except for Ben himself. Okay? Sure, okay Be sure. real. Although I will talk about the dilemma there in a minute. But Gordon, <laughs> poor Gordon was like, yeah. I want to go on a trip. Sure, this roommate yeah. situation sounds good. Like, haha. Like, he's earnest. He's open. And I just feel like he's a necessary character, like you said in the story. Um, can we just talk about one other moment that struck me as darkly funny about this story? Mm-hmm. Ben is arrested, I guess, in Virginia or whatever. And he's with the other guy, Patrick. And they know that, that, battering ram they're in a stranger's house the battery that's there for them they know and he's told he's canadian and he's told he told me he's like if you help me i can help you and my dumbass, not knowing how the legal system works he's like oh okay let me just decrypt everything for you and seal my fate if you help me we'll help you and he's like okay and he, <laughs> he just immediately unencrypts all of his data and just gives it to them. And I'm like, this is the most Canadian arrest of a mastermind criminal that is possible. He's just like, sorry, here's my <laughs> all my passcodes <laughs> for my empire. I mean, maybe I was just grasping in this podcast for funny moments because I needed them so badly because it was so upsetting. I thought that was funny. Am I crazy that that was just like... No, it's, it's, it's you're right. It is a very Canadian thing. <laughs> okay, I'll give you all my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, one of the things that this, this podcast tries to do, and Damon Fairless, I will say, I think he's a great narrator. I love his voice. This is the story of the men who operate in the most disturbing corners of the internet. It's the story of the police who track down those men, who hunt undercover in the dark. 
I uh, have the one sheet for the podcast in front of me, and he looks a lot like his voice, which is very always very satisfying when someone looks like you. Imagine that. I mean, he looks look- rugged. He looks rugged. Yeah. Um, like he climbs mountains on the weekend. My only complaint about the setup for this podcast is I, I love when he sort of explains why it's important to tell these stories because you can't understand something unless you actually look at it. It's natural to want to turn away from uncomfortable stories. I get that, and I respect it. The problem is you can't change what you don't understand, and you can't possibly understand the stories you avoid. And you have to look at it in order to understand it to be able to like do something about it. The more I've come to understand just how prevalent and how destructive child pornography is, the more compelled I am to cover it. As a journalist. And he goes, I have to as a journalist. And then he says. But also as a father. And as a father. And I'm like, no, you don't need to add that. You don't need to add that one. Every time someone does that in a piece of reporting, I just want to just like be like, dude, it was good before you said that you don't need to add it. You're a human being. Like, being a parent is the least interesting thing about an adult right. person. Many of us are parents. That's not what makes it interesting. And it's like those people are like, you know, I've got a daughter, so I really support the Me Too movement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but one of the things that Damon tries to do, Toby, and I think this is one of the most challenging things as a listener, especially for me as a survivor, he's not trying to get us to empathize with Ben. He talked to some of the world's foremost experts in this topic, in child sex abuse, in pedophilia, in, you know, Internet crimes like this. And the case that he is not necessarily trying to make, but I think challenging us to look at by introducing us to Ben's parents and like doing all this research is that, Ben, we are conditioned to say pedophiles, lock them up, put them away forever, is also a human being with a story and a path that got him here. And I think Damon makes the case that Ben is one of the bad ones. Ben doesn't have remorse. Ben doesn't have, you know, a lot of the turning points that could have changed things for him. But, Toby, isn't it challenging to just sort of be faced with that question? That, like, this category of people that we are conditioned to revile are also people. You know, first of all, I think Ben, like, the pedophilia is, like, one of his problems. But, you know, I think he's clearly a narcissist and... He's got a lot of other things that I think kind of get him from his sexual desires to the sort of criminal, the hard to empathize with. Trying to envision what it would be like to like really have your sexual attraction be towards kids must feel like some kind of curse or something. I mean, it's there, there's no place where that's acceptable. And I mean, it's just, it's just got to feel like why. Mm. And I just, I remember it being at the moment, it was like, oh, you know, whatever. But as it started to dawn on me, it was just, it was crushing. I don't, I don't even know how else to explain it. Just like it's this existential misery that you know that you're never going to be, ever going to be who people think you are. And then, you know, there are people who try and suppress it, and I'm sure. Tons and tons do. You just don't really hear about it because that's not something you're going to talk to people about. And then, you know, as the guy was saying, there there are some who don't. And then the and the people who don't and who do act on it, they're the ones who feel remorse and they're the ones who, you know, feel entitled or feel that it's okay. And um, yeah, so it's it's tough. And I think it's, it's also tough because I'm not really sure there's anything that's like analogous to pedophilia, but there are mental situations where 
you can catch it early and you can you can work with people and and try and get past it and i don't think that really exists for pedophiles i think it's mostly post uh being caught yeah is when is when you start getting treated so anyway it's 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 a tough one and i i think for some people who who can't resist acting on it you need to figure out a way to keep them away from kids I appreciate what, he's, what the point he's trying to make, although I, I think as a society, we're not there yet. We're in an age now where we've moved away from just understanding everything about sex, gender, and sexuality as being binary. We're like, okay, there's multiple things going on, and whether it's different kinds of attractions or kinks or anything, you know, that we're trying to find like places where they go and that maybe it's not an aberration like we would have thought of 50 years ago. It's this or that. But pedophilia actually hurts people. Well, no, well, <laughs> bro, no but see, this is I'm, what he's saying. I know you're not making he's, that case, no, by the no, way. No, 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 no. But this is, the, this is the point the podcast is making. It's take away the crime of acting on the feelings. Put that aside. The can, medical condition, the psychological condition, or the personality disorder, whatever that is that you're, like Toby says, that turns your desire from a healthy, adult-based sexual relationship, your attraction is to children or very young children. Something biological and scientific is happening there that we don't understand. But because it often comes with the crime. Right. That I don't think we're there yet to really sort of appreciate that medical condition or what I don't even know how to describe it. Right, because as, as pedophilia as a thing to be studied not in connection with a crime. With a crime. I don't think we're there yet. We've talked about this a million times around the Law and Order podcast that we do. And and at SVU every time someone says the word pedophile, it's like throw them away forever, right? And like I'm not making the case that that shouldn't yeah. be the case if someone's committing those crimes, but that also leads the way for there being no path to rehabilitation for someone who has not committed a crime or someone who has those feelings of isolation. Or nor, no path for prevention. Correct. Which was the, what the, 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 exactly. the point they made. Okay, so let's move on because one episode of this podcast was without a doubt one of the most difficult things I have listened to in my adult life in no small part because of my own experience. Laura, episode four... Ben's cousin, Jen, uh, we hear that Ben at some point came to visit Jen. Her radar was always up. She was vigilant in many, many ways, and yet he managed to abuse her daughter. And she ends up making uh, two victim impact statements, one which was addressed toward the judge in one court case. And then later in the podcast, after some time has passed and is being sentenced for the uh, online crimes, she makes a victim impact statement directly to him. This was difficult, right, Laura? This entire part of the story, it was almost like unbearable listening. Yeah, it was it was horrible. And and she was really to me one of like I felt like she was the most compelling articulate character that they included. Um she just was able to really articulate in a way that it was it was hard to listen to, but she really communicated well, not only from the point of view of like when they were kids and they were younger and they were close, but then how she, you know, started to sort of notice some things that just didn't feel right and how she was like trusting that feeling. But I mean, that was the thing that was so scary is even though she's trusting her gut feeling. And I was saying that's like the big message here is listen to your gut when you get that feeling and you're like, something's not right. It's not right. But I mean, I just can't even imagine how he was able to do that with her in the house. 
She was right outside the door, Laura. She was right outside the door. Listening, because she was listening. And she was kind of, because she was like, something's not right. I'm going to, I'm doing the laundry or whatever she was doing. But then when, you know, fast forward to when they get the, you know, she gets the phone call and, you know, it's the authorities and they want to meet with her. And then going through that whole process and her just absolute disbelief. I mean, it was, I, I really felt like, it was awful because it's like you can't imagine that something like that could happen to your child in your house while you're there, while you were being quite vigilant and suspicious. And yet it happened. And and I, I appreciated where she was coming from listening to this because I felt like I, I liked how um, she really called him out on, you know, what had happened in a way that some of the other people that were close to him didn't seem willing to do. On another note about that, we often podcasts when they just let their subject just talk and talk mm. and there's no interjection or direction driven by the host and Jen tells her story so well yeah. that they can just it's suspenseful her back. yes my husband was gone most of this visit so it was me and Ben in the evenings and that's when we'd hang out and talk and watch Stranger Things anytime he got too close to him when he had his laptop he'd grab the top and bend it towards his chest. And I'd be like, dude, I don't, he's okay, I'm treating him like a brother. I don't wanna see your porn, dude. I don't wanna see the boobies and stuff on your computer. And he's like, ha 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 ha. And I was like, no, really, it's probably like some stupid Minecraft, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. It was always one of those situations where I'd be like messing with him and he'd just roll with it effortlessly. He doesn't need to get involved, you know, interjecting or or filling in the blanks or moving it along. It's edited so well that he doesn't need to be there. And it's not accidental because Damon does get involved in that kind of storytelling in the other episodes. But they knew enough to kind of just let her tell her story because it was more powerful that way. So sometimes that works when it's done well. But again, of course, it is the CBC and they all went on May. They could have been 10 or 15 with minutes With every shorter. subject, yeah. More is more with Especially the CBC. Especially with our Nor- Norwegian reporters. Yeah. Like, we don't need the... I understand it was a collaboration, and the way they did it was like, we're going to sit down and yeah. talk, and it was too... Those sections were just too long. Like, we had the information, and then we just expanded on the information, and yeah. that was... It, those were too long, and also the it's levels... Too long, but, but, but I will say the substance was good. The substance was good. But, Those yeah. were too long, and the levels were not great in those sections. The field tape, like... Yeah. Put the microphone right on that guy, man. Just do it. Because I yeah. kept having to turn the volume up and down. Yeah. It's my one complaint. <laughs> yeah. It was bad with the telephone interviews. Too. Yes. They, yeah. They were normalized. Yes. But that being said, there's a lot to like really praise about this project, I think, and what it tried to accomplish. I think that Damon Fairless's stated intention, as well as the Norwegian reporter, stated intention of looking at stories about people who commit these crimes and just being relentless and not looking away. Like I disclosed at the beginning of this part of the podcast that I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I think, I mean, I know most of my friends are too. Like all but like two of my adult female friends are. I haven't really talked to a lot of the men about that, but a lot of the women, we all talk about it. None of us are comfortable talking about it because we don't talk about it, because we don't report on it, because we don't have stories like this that just make it a thing that is okay to discuss and look at and dissect. If we suspected someone in our family was looking at this material on our computers, our first reaction would be to slam the lid closed and be like, you go see a psychiatrist and we're not talking about this anymore or something, right? Uh, It's so 
painful and it's so difficult. But I think, and I really do believe this, a huge part of the reason why it's so painful and difficult, even though so many of us share the experience, is because we don't talk about it. And the only way to talk about it is to, I don't want to say normalize it, but normalize talking about it. And, you know, the podcast does a tremendous service there, which is why I can maybe forgive some of the production stuff a little more than usual. All right. So let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review for Hunting Warhead from the CBC, a complicated and dark and deep look at a troubling criminal enterprise. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Hunting Warhead from the CBC? Uh, I'm going to give it thumbs up. Uh, It was something that I think was an important listen. It was really, really hard to listen to. It was really upsetting. I'm going to have to go watch like a week of Hallmark movies after this because I just, it was heavy and it was hard, uh, but it was really interesting to hear about how, you know, the whole hacker community works, you know, in, in a way that I hadn't heard before and how um, these journalists were able to sort of infiltrate that and then tell the story. Uh, it was it was interesting, um, but it, it was it was a tough listen. So it's a thumbs up, but it's it's uh, be prepared. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Hunting Warhead from the CBC? Yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up, too. I think it's actually an incredible bit of journalism. My only thing is, if if you're worried that you might be triggered or it, you think it might not be the kind of thing you want to listen to, you're, you're probably right. It's some tough slutting at times. So that aside, I, I think it, it, it's an incredible piece. Yeah, I'm giving this a big thumbs up. I really enjoyed listening to it as much as one can enjoy listening to a podcast about this subject because of the journalism. The journalism is top notch. All of my quibbles about this podcast are about production, letting interviews go too long, uh, making sure there are Norwegian subjects taped in the field. They need hotter mics or better levels because the difference between Damon's narration and theirs made it so I had to turn the volume up and down. And one other production quibble, which I wouldn't normally make except this podcast is so excellent and I so respect everything about it. It has kick-ass sound design that is too soft for the podcast. The theme song is amazing and kick-ass. They have this little special effect that's like this little digital flutter that they yeah. do during like moments as a beat. And it's soft. Like it should I know. Be, I didn't notice it. It should punch through. Yeah. Whoever is doing the mixing on this podcast, lean in. Don't make it so loud that it's hard to hear the voices. But don't be afraid to have your theme song and your effects match the levels of your narration at certain moments to really, really drive it home. Because the the sound design that is there, the music, the sound effects, the scoring is really, really good. It just could have been actually been more. Take away some of the exposition, add more of that sound design. That's my one production note. But I think this podcast is important. I think it's going to go on the next Mount Rushmore of important true crime podcasts. It's different than anything else I've heard. It's a true international journalism investigation. Kevin Flynn, what about you? So you liked it? I really liked it. It it triggered me. I cried many, many times listening to it. Personally, I loved it. Kevin, what about you? I am a thumbs up. I don't think it is as explicit as believed, but it is just as jarring and probably even more important. This is a disturbing must listen or... A disturbing not listen. It serves the scope and importance of the story, and it moves beyond the crime into a larger issue that hasn't been tackled anywhere. 
a fascinating investigation, a digital investigation, a cyber investigation, a criminal investigation looking at one person and how it affects a larger issue. It is quite something. Definitely a thumbs up. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. So before our next segment, I just want to like say something important that is a service to our listeners. Thank you for listening to the darkest episode of Crime Writers on Ever. If you want something amazing to listen to, to cleanse your palate after listening to this week's podcast or even listening to our review of the last podcast, I cannot recommend enough the latest episode of Dolly Parton's America, which is about the song Jolene and is one of the most complete and interesting and broad, but also extremely narrow pieces of storytelling I've heard in a long time. I think it's an achievement and it's super fun and super uplifting and also a thinker. Listen to the Jolene episode of Dolly Parton's America. This is not an ad. This is a recommendation. Kevin, did you finally listen to it or not? Well, I, that was so disturbing. I had to go listen to something else. <laughs> and I think I'm going to go back and listen to the I Will Always Love You <laughs> episode, episode two. I thought that was a Celine Dion song. <laughs> oh, jeez. Toby, yeah. I sent you a note on Slack today. And I was like, give Dolly Parton's America another chance, Toby, and listen to this one episode. I, I will listen to it. It's got a, an incredible musicological breakdown of the song itself. And then it also has like a bigger sort of unifying theory of Dolly Parton and her like inclusive audience, which isn't really true. But it's just it's really, really, really fun. I highly recommend it. Laura, you listened to it, right? Um, I, yeah, I haven't listened to the new episode yet. I've been listening to some uplifting stuff about a uh, airline crash in uh, Antarctica. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, all right. We're the weirdest was, four fucking people. It was actually really interesting. So I will I will put Dolly on my list for tomorrow morning's um, walking adventures because it's actually going to stop raining in New Hampshire. Allegedly, the sun is coming out. So I will have the sun and Dolly tomorrow morning. Moving on. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime. Crime of the week. Of the week. A 380-pound Florida man was arrested last week in possession of a needle filled with meth and sent to county lockup. 
It was there officers did a body search of Martin Skelly and found he was smuggling more drugs. Officials say they found a bag of meth wedged way in to his belly button cavity. (laughs) When pressed on why he had contraband in his navel, he said, quote, I was just being dumb and not thinking. Skelly faces an additional two felony charges. He's being held in lieu of bond. Panel, it was probably not the first time Skelly's belly has been used as a pocket. What else has he been keeping in there? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I'm going for the obvious, the world's largest lint ball. (laughs) (laughs) Toybo, what about you? What has been kept in Skelly's belly button all of these times before this bag of drugs? Beers, I assume. They're the gateway drug. (laughs) (laughs) Beer bellies. Kevin, what do you think? What do you think this guy's been hiding in his belly button all these years? I think it's been like Mary Poppins' bag, and he's just pulling an (laughs) umbrella out of it, like hand over hand, pulling it straight out. coat rack. coat rack. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we should probably learn on that note, but before we do, Laura Bricker, do you have a cat of the week this week? We have some dogs and um, Yes, I need dogs, Laura Bricker. I need them this week. Well, you're gonna have dogs, and these are palate cleansing dogs because they are watching the young and the restless. So I don't know this person's real name, Snoopy Fan 8. Snoopy Fan 8 sent a video of their dogs, uh, Amber and Sadie. Watching the young and the restless. Now, Sadie is deaf as a doornail, apparently, and just sits there and like looks like the other direction. But Amber is howling at the theme song for the young and the restless. Nice. But anyway, I appreciated the dog howling at the TV and the other one just completely oblivious because they were deaf and old. So (laughs) it's a nice video. It will break up all of the awfulness and depressingness of uh, what we reviewed this week with the dark uh, reviews. So go take a watch at Snoopy Fan 8. Well, I love these dogs, Laura Bricker, because as you know, I am a longtime fan and current viewer of The Young and the Restless. It is my secret non-shame. What? And in fact... I have a theory that the show Succession is basically just plagiarizing The Young and the Restless. We'll get into that another time. Laura Bricker, if people want to go ahead and send you their submissions for dogs to be Cat of the Week in two weeks, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you that your insights into tonight's show were really, really good and they're on your side all the time. How can they find you on Twitter? I'll be holding my breath. At Toby Ball NH. <laughs> and Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you, how can they find you? They can find me at Kevin P. Flynn. And now on our website, you can get your t shirt that says, Eat a dick. I have my own podcast. <laughs> Is that real? Yeah, it's real. Gotta get it. Yep. <laughs> and if you want to follow my- <laughs> And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, but that's boring. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media, and you will get the Crime Writers On after show right now. You'll also get three other podcasts. Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Line editing by the very handsome Henry Lavoie. 
And special welcome again to the newest member of our team, longtime listener Meredith Plunkett, who's now our social media maven. You can also sign up for our newsletter at CrimeWritersOn.com. Meredith's running the show there. You should get it. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where Kevin also complains about Mondays. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. All right. I, I want to let you guys know in advance. I just took a picture of it. I have the largest glass of wine I've ever had during a taping of a podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> At the ready. What's, what's the occasion? Because this is such a depressing podcast this, this is, time. Yeah. Hey, listen, we got Nazis. We've got pedophiles. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Crime crime media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.